again, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the, blood of Jesus, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the divining wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to, to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and mem members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple, temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. It is impossible to fill Pastor Steve's shoes. I, uh, unlike Pastor Steve, I cannot bench press 300 pounds. I did not graduate high school as valedictorian, homecoming king, prom king. I did not win superlatives for being best looking, <laughs> most likely to succeed. And I think the last one was most adorably clueless. Uh, but none of those things apparently made it on the list of requirements to be able to preach here. So it is my joy to be able to teach on hospitality tonight. Um, when we talk about hospitality, you might picture um, like a host that has a party and someone who loves people and loves to have people over and has really good manners and maybe has really great food and drink. Uh, and, and biblical hospitality might include all those things, but um, it goes beyond that. And so Matt Chandler, he's the president of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network that we are a part of. He uses this as a good working definition. Uh, benevolence done to those outside one's normal circle of friends. So I think that's a good, concise definition. Benevolence done to those outside one's normal circle of friends. And one thing that I found very helpful is to kind of reframe what it means to be a host. So when you think of a host as uh, welcoming people to their house, that, I think that's still applicable, but let's reframe it so that once you are brought into God's family, you are now welcoming people into God's kingdom. So we open our lives, not we open up our lives, not just our homes to people. So um, the Bible is, is very clear that hospitality is important. It's a, it's a command. You see that in places like Hebrews 13. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And when we talk about commands, we, we always want to point back to um, this is not something that we do to earn God's favor, to earn acceptance by God, but it's something we get to do because we've been accepted by God. So you can look earlier in Ephesians 2, um, verses 8, 8, 9, and 10. It says, um, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your undoing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this isn't something that we need to do to, to earn and be accepted by God, but God's prepared these good works for us in advance, and so we get to do this. We get to extend and reflect how kind he's been to us towards others. And it's also um, a gift. So if, if you look in the New Testament, there are 
spiritual gifts, the gifts that have been given by the Holy Spirit to uh, people when the Holy Spirit indwells us. And there's lists in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, and there's things like teaching and faith and healings and administration, and hospitality is considered a gift also. There's a Christian news satire site called uh, Babylon Bee, and they had a funny article that captures, I think, with some truth, how hospitality might be viewed by some people. It says, uh, Robert was devastated as he learned he just had the quote-unquote super lame gift of hospitality. And I, I would kind of add to that. I've always kind of viewed hospitality as kind of like a, a softball gift where everyone kind of had it. Like, if you like to have people over, you've got it. And what, what I would contend tonight is it's a lot deeper than that, and it's, it's a lot harder than what we might have thought. Um, the, the last thing before we get into um, Ephesians 2 that I want to think about with, with hospitality is that it's, it's certainly a practice, and it can include all those things, um, welcoming and, and um, food and drinks and, and being uh, kind of manners, but it's, it's a posture of the heart also. And we know um, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the, spring of, the springs of life. And um, we have to fight for it, to have a hospitable heart towards others. And so when you look through Scripture, there's um, a hospitable heart has so many components to it. it one is um, it doesn't grumble. First Peter 4.9 says, um, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And, you know, begrudging obedience to God's word uh, does not glorify God. I, w- I was reminded of this two weeks ago. Uh, my wife, Cynthia, signed our family up to ring the bell for Salvation Army in Indiana in a restaurant, outside a restaurant, in the cold, and it's fun when everyone's together, as with all things, it's fun, you can sing songs as people come up, but then uh, my father-in-law came at 12.30, and it just made sense for everyone else to go into the restaurant, and I'll just ring the bell by myself for the last (laughs) half hour, and not that I was watching the clock, but at 12.51, two other people came up, and uh, the first things they said were, you look like you're, you're ready to be done. And, I, you know, I thought I hid my face better than that, but, uh, I, you know, I think just me by myself, it just was not, it wasn't, that wasn't bringing glory to anyone, you know. Um, it didn't have the right heart. Uh, the, the hospital heart, it's focused on others. So Second Timothy 3 warns us against being lovers of self. And so I, I think that's um, something that we need to think about when we were thinking about hospitality. It's not about impressing other people. It's about the focus is on guests, and we want to be a blessing to others and, and, and um, care for others in hospitality. Um, hospitality is inviting to everyone. You look at Luke 14, the parable of the great banquet, and says, he said um, also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so we differ from culture because we see everyone as having equal value as a child of God, um, as a, a creation of God, and we will actually go out and pursue people who are, are the most vulnerable, who um, are the most underprivileged. And lastly, you look in uh, Matthew 25, at the final judgment, Jesus says he's going to look his, to his right at the sheep, and he's going to say, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And then down in verse 40, he says, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. And so 
Uh, we see everyone as a creation of God. A, a hospitable heart is going to see everyone as reflecting God's image. So, and, and this is what Jesus says. When you did it to one of these, least of these, you've done it to me. So tonight we're going to look at uh, hospitality in Ephesians 2 in, in three concentric circles. So the first one is, is this vertical hospitality. So we'll say hospitality of salvation, that how, how God showed kindness to us through Jesus. And then we'll, the, the next ring will be hospitality as community, how um, once we are brought into God's family, it changes how we treat each other and how we extend hospitality to one another. And then this third ring will be hospitality as mission. So uh, as a family, we're going to go out and we're going to be kind towards others, and we're trying to bring people into the family, God. So the first circle is um, hospitality as salvation. And when you hear hospitality, if you're like me, you probably have all these memories come into mind of uh, like ways people have extended hospitality in the past. And I have this one that just is at the top of my list. When we were in New York, I had a coworker, and um, he was from India. So he invited us to his wedding. It was 11 years ago, and we got to go. He was friends with my parents also, so they got invited. And so since we were invited, um, we decided to make it a family trip. So my brother... Uh, and my sister and my brother-in-law came also just to kind of tour the cities. And we weren't expecting our plus three to be able to be invited to the wedding, but once he found out, he insisted that they come. And so uh, we get there, and the, the wedding was three nights, and there were over 500 people there. And the first night, were, they send buses to pick everyone up, and um, they had outfits made for everyone. So all the, all the women had saris, and um, the men had these tunic shirts, and the, we get off the bus to a different part in Delhi, and the doors open, and it's this outdoor venue at night, and it is just lit up by trees with lights running up. It. There's strings of marigolds running out, and then there's like all these stations of um, people getting henna tattoos, and then there's this row in the back of just all this food, and there's like this horizontal drum with ice cream that you can um, get off it, and it was it was amazing. And then Cynthia and my sister got sick. And so I remember just being so scared. We were in a different country. No one in my family spoke Hindi and just not sure what to do. And Nikhil, my friend, he, his, the groom, um, he was making his rounds. And I think he just saw the, the look on our faces. He came over and then he just made things happen. He took us to the cars because there, no, there were no cars there. And so he arranged for a car to come and pick up Cynthia and my sister and... Um, it was amazing. I mean, if you're wondering what I did, I made sure they got in the car, and then I went back and partied, and it was awesome. <laughs> but, but, you know, the things that make me think about that story, it was, I mean, we were strangers, and there was so much fear being in a foreign land. Um, I, I think about a groom, like, we were nobodies at that wedding. There were so much family and friends, and the, the most important person at that party came and um, came to help us. And then um, there was just uh, so much. Um, there was so much that was going on with uh, the how how much he did and how much personal attention he gave us. That um, I just think this is this is such a good example. And there's these themes you kind of see in God's hospitality to us. But what you're going to see in Ephesians too is there's no no human story that can compare to what God's done to us. So we're going to start in verses 12. Verse 12. 
says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so that, that first beginning, remember, we're looking back at what God has done and where we've been. So we've been separated from Christ, and we had no hope, and we were without God in the world. And, and if you look next in verse 13, it says we were once far off. So and this is Paul preaching to the Gentiles, and we were sep- the Gentiles were separated from Old Testament Israel, which meant that they are separated from Christ because Scripture says that salvation was from the Jews. And we see this, and we see separation, and we know that separation, our separation from God is due to sin. And we know that man wasn't always separated from God. We, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and then the fall happened in Genesis 3. And we know that God, God sent out Adam and Eve from the Garden because evil cannot dwell amongst God. That's, Psalm 5 is very clear that evil cannot dwell with God. So this, this, this hope and despair, this having no hope, um, how are we supposed to be with God again if we are evil, if we are far off, and we know that we cannot, God, to be with God requires perfection. And that is, that is despair. If you look at your, our hearts and our actions, there's just no way that we can be righteous enough to be with the holy and perfect God. Verses, uh, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is a transition to we, what you were and then what, you, what has happened in Christ. And we see what happened. He, he brought us near. And, you know, we are the object in the sentence. Jesus is the, is the subject. We are the recipient of the action. And I, I think of um, Luke 15, uh, the parable of the lost sheep. And, the, you know, the, the, it says that there's a parable. There's a man who had 100 sheep and one of them is lost. And he goes and leaves the 99 other behind to go find the one. And it says, when he found him, he laid him on his shoulder, and he said, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And it wasn't that he found him and said, just led him back to the 99 others. The sheep could not walk. Like, he had to carry him back. And that's, that's that picture I get. Like, we were brought near. We were not walking side by side with God. He had to carry us back to God. And that's um, just a sign of our helplessness. I think of, like, a, a race where... You, can, you kind of see um, sometimes at the finish line where someone is being helped, and then they'll, they'll want to say, like, I want to cross the line on my own. Um, and, and that's not us. We cannot do anything. We have to be carried on, on God's shoulders to get back to God. And, and this is going back to Philippians 2, what we were reading earlier, that as we approach Advent. This is at infinite cost to do this. Because um, like 2 Corinthians 8 says, though he was rich, yet for his sake, for, for your sake, he became poor. He was the pre-existent, eternal Son of God in heaven, and he left that behind to be humbled and be born as a child, and then to go and be die- and uh, be killed on a cross. And that is uh, just this incredible cost that we, you know we can't wrap our, our heads around. Um, the end of verse thirteen, verse thirteen says, um, "By the blood of Christ." But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we now have access to God. So we, we see um, we have access to God because it, the, the death of Jesus had, had a, um, a purpose. There was, it wasn't just a moral example. It was substitutionary. And we know from Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death and, and that we are sinners. 
And then you look in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the most concise uh, summary of the gospel, and it says, uh, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And that's that, that operative word is for. He died for our sins, which is because of. So he died because of our sins. Our sins led to his death. It was a, He was a substitute for us, and that's what it accomplished. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, it's just known as the great exchange. Um, we see the substitution. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin was exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. And in the metaphor in Ephesians 2, our separation from God is then exchanged for intimacy with God. And that's why on the cross, um, Jesus cries out, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that is that separation that was us that he has now taken on for himself. And then verses 14 and on, you see what, what, what we get because of the substitutionary death, because of what Christ has done on this rescue mission. It says, verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace. Um, and, and we had this in the song earlier. This peace, is, it's a shalom peace. It's not a, a just ceasefire between enemies where two people are shaking hands and, and not, we're just agreeing not to shoot at each other anymore. This is a, it's a harmony and it's a flourishing and it's, this is how things ought to be. And then in verse 19, it says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we are also brought into the nation, the kingdom, uh, the family of God. And so these, these things are all, all, there's so many elements to the salvation plan that God had in mind for us, that this rescue mission, it was individual, it was for individual people, and it had all these things. There was you are far off. He's came on a rescue mission to carry us back to him at infinite cost to himself. And it was, his, he died in our place. And then we get shalom. We get adoption into this family. And there's just, um, there's nothing in this world that can compare to that. So because of that, it changes how we relate to others. So the, the second ring is hospitality as community. And in 2009, Netflix came out with this presentation on their corporate culture and it was about freedom and responsibility. And so it's been viewed 19 million times now. I think Sheryl Sandberg, who's COO of Facebook, she called it one of the most important documents that came out of Silicon Valley. And it just talks about, Netflix is a, is a company, they do streaming, TV, and movies. And they've, they've been known to have a very innovative culture because they've been able to switch from DVDs to streaming, and then they started making their own shows. And they have slides in there about hard work, not relevant. And then they say, you know, adequate performance leads to a generous severance check. Uh, and then there's this one slide that I think just captures everyone's attention. And it says, we're a team, not a family. We're like a professional sports team, not your kid's recreational team. And I think that just gave everyone um, so much clarity and of like what to expect from what, if you were to work here. We're, we're not a family. We don't, we're going to treat you differently because this isn't a family, and your expectations of us should be different because we're not a family. Um, but that, that's, that's a company. Okay, so if we look at the church, what is the church? We, we're not a team. We're not a professional sports team. We're not a business. Um, we don't judge people. We don't, uh, we don't judge people by their performance. We're not firing and hiring and cutting people. We're not, the church is not a building. 
but what we've seen in scripture, if you remember back to 1 Peter 2, we see that the church is a spiritual house. Um, we are the living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 1 Corinthians 12 says we are a body with many members. Um, and then here in verse 19, what we just read, we see that we are citizens of the kingdom and members of a family. And th- that's just my favorite one, I think, that, that we are members of a family. And I had, I had a good family growing up. Um, even if you didn't have a good family growing up, I think, you know, we take so much comfort in the, the head of our family is the father that is perfect. And he is good. And he is all-powerful. And he is loving. And he, and he loves us individually. So um, what, what we see in verses 14 through 16 is that Christ reconciled us vertically, um, and then he's also reconciled us horizontally. So verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man and in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So if you recall when we were talking about community, um, we were saying it's easy sometimes, but sometimes it's hard because we are so different and sometimes uh, we, we can't annoy each other. And, and this is what, what this is saying is that Christ, when he brings us into this family, we, we treat each other differently because we've been given new hearts and we see each other as family members. So if you, um, we're going to look at, the, the way we treat each other, it's going to be different than what cult, how culture treats each other. Um, if, if you recall, there's, we've talked about this before, there's over 50 commands of, of one another's of how the family of God treats each other. So there is serve and strengthen and help and encourage and be devoted to and be patient with and love. And this is how we're going to treat each other, e- even people that are new and even people that are outside your close circle of friends. So one of my favorite stories is um, when we were at Portico, the Sending Church, we had a family come, and this family was amazing. They had a child with Down syndrome biologically, and then after that, they went out and adopted a, a child with Down syndrome. And so special needs kids, special needs families have a, a special place in God's heart, and they require a lot of attention. And there were um, two girls from the church that would go over on um, some regular frequency, and they would help out and give the parents a break. And this family was, was so new to the church. And I thought, this is something that is so unique to the church. And, you know, this is, the world cannot make sense of this. That They're going to take, so, sacrifice so much, these two people, and, and just go help out another family that they've known for such a short period. And this is the type of hospitality we're talking about. Like, you know, outside one's normal circle of friends, we are going to, be kind and, and treat each other as family. So I think it's a good challenge for us that um, we want to extend hospitality to people who are new. Um, I think it's always helpful if you kind of remember what it's like the first time you came here, the first time you came to any new church. It's, it's scary. <laughs> you know, you, you, you don't know anyone and um, you don't know what to expect. And I remember when I first became, when I first got saved at our church in New York, um, I would go to church and I would just leave afterwards and not say, talk to anyone. And it was, it was good and encouraging, and being fed by the word is great. But um, when I joined a community group and then people were um, coming up to me on Sundays afterwards, it, then it just became so fun. 
And, and I think has like the, it's so life-changing with how community and, and um, family cares for one another, what, especially when you're new. So here we want to keep an eye out for people who are new, for um, people, uh, we, we want to make it easier for people to get plugged in. We want to initiate conversations. We want to give people opportunities in smaller settings. So that's why there's things like the meal after church and community groups and discipleship groups. Um, but if you have been with us for however long and, and you don't feel like you've been welcomed, um, we just ask that, would you come up and, and say something so that um, we can figure out how to, how to get better at this? Because it is so crazy after church, um, people are running around and we're trying to get things packed up. So if you don't feel like you've been welcomed, would, would you please just tell someone and we want to see how we can get better in something like this? And hospitality, so that, that's in this local body, but it also extends to um, the bigger church also. So if you look at John 17, John 17 is the high priestly prayer. This is the last uh, prayer of Jesus. And so he prays for himself, and then he prays for his disciples, and then at the end he prays for all future believers. And so John 17, 22, and 23, it says this, um, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you love me. So he's saying that, he, he's praying to God that um, believers would be one as close as he and the son, as, as close as Jesus and the father are. And that is just so hard to picture. Um, and in verse 23, you see the purpose of it. It says, so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And I think like our kids, when we talk about their friends and who they want to pray for, um, you know, sometimes they'll say prayers like, uh, I, I pray that Derek wouldn't miss me tomorrow. Or, <laughs> you know, but, but so when they're stumbling and, and they kind of forget what the what, what to pray for, we always say, and you can say, Father, I pray that Derek would know how much you love them. And, and so it's just so interesting to me. It's like, we pray that people would know how much you love them. And this is saying the unity of the body, the unity of the church is how the world is going to know that God loves them. And th that is just, this is just so striking. This is like, this unity, unity amongst the church is this important, that this is how God's love is going to go out. So there's a a book called Originals. This is by this guy, Adam Grant. It came out three years ago. And he had this chapter. He, he he's, uh, uh, specializes in organizational psychology, and it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell-style books. And he had a chapter on alliances. And so they were looking at how alliances can achieve goals and then and what also drives groups apart. And so they had this uh, concept of horizontal hostility. And so they were looking at studies. And it was so interesting. So it was basically saying that um, if you look at a scale, more radical or extreme groups, they often disparage more mainstream groups who are closer to the center, um, and they, they, they view them as imposters or sellouts. And so, like, vegans, if they're on this side, they viewed vegetarians with three times more prejudice than the other way around. And then Orthodox Jews, they viewed conservative Jews more negatively than Jewish people who don't practice any holidays. And so the, the basic summary is, is go big or go home. Like, if you, if you are a true believer, you would be all in. And, and that's helpful for me to hear because I think when I, when I look at my heart, um, I, I love when we go through 
this series. And we talk about our mission and convictions and how much we love truth and mission and community and all these things. And um, when I see other people or churches who may be a little more mainstream, I can see in my heart maybe some hostility that comes up. And it's something that, you know, there is a place for rebuke. You know, 1 Corinthians 5 says that um, we're supposed to judge inside the church and God judges outside. But when I hear about John 17, I think about this, I think I want to be more charitable towards other Christians, more charitable towards other churches. And even like our our church in New York, you know, it, it was more mainstream. I think in the early 2000s, they'd call it the, say, a seeker-friendly church. And, you know, there are times where I can have these bitter feelings come up about why it's not more like us, um, as opposed to just being thankful for what they are, and, and even praying for them that God would use them to do something. So um, I think that, that when I think about um, how all this wor- works in a, a world that, you know, the world hates us. And so we need each other um, so much. And so it makes me want to um, work hard about being good and welcoming in our local body. It makes me want to be more charitable towards other Christians, and it makes me want to pray for other churches um, for this unity. So this last last ring, um, hospitality is mission. And I think this is a good way to think about it. My uh, Cynthia's mom is one of 10 kids, and we have this awesome family reunion every summer in Indiana. And there's, I, I think I am number 120-something in there, and it's three days, and there's water balloon fights, and there's tons of food, and then on Sunday, somebody's going to get up and preach a sermon. And so about five years ago, we started having this trend where some of the younger kids would start inviting friends, and my heart was, uh, I, I think I just thought, why are you doing this? Like, this is taken away from the family dynamic, and I don't want to have to spend time talking to you when I'm not sure if I'm going to see you again. I just want to talk to my family, you know. And, and then I just started thinking about, what's it like being this guest? And, like, if, if they have experienced so much coldness throughout the three days, and then they hear this awesome sermon on a Sunday, they're, they're going to, the predominant thought they're going to walk away with is, why is everyone so cold? to me. You, you know, it's like as, as clear as the message could be on a Sunday and as life-changing as the message could be, the predominant thought is going to be, why, why, why weren't people warm to me? Like, why would I, why would I want to be in this family? And so uh, I think that's helpful for me. When you look at the um, Ephesians 2, we can see in verse 17, verse 17, and you came and preached Peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so this is the ministry of Jesus. He's going, he's, he is preaching peace. He is going and proclaiming this reconciliation that is available. And last week we talked about the Great Commission. That, um, you go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That This was the ministry of Jesus and then now it is the ministry of the church. This is our responsibility and our, uh, this is what we are called to do, and it's our mandate. So he's still preaching this message of peace, but now it goes through us. And so um, 2 Corinthians 5 would would call this the ministry of reconciliation. It says that um, Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation, so we are now ambassadors of Christ. We implore people to to be reconciled to God, and and he is imploring people through us. So this is, you know, we we each have such unique opportunities. Um, Acts 17 says that God's determined the 
the period and uh, and um, the period and boundaries of where we're, we are. So you are here, I am here in this place for an intentional reason. We we live where we are and at this time because God is determined and desires us to be here. So we we each have different personalities. We live in different neighborhoods. We are in different professions. We have different circles of friends, and that, that should be an exciting thing that the, the opportunities are so unique to each of us. So for us, it's been a, a really fun season that our, our oldest boys are in kindergarten, and so we have had uh, just really great opportunities um, with other parents and other families at the bus stop. And so we had, um, you, you know, like one family, the the, they were moving, and the mom and the son had to stay behind longer. And so when I look back at you know, Ephesians 2 and how we want to um, be hospitable to strangers, the, the thing I keep coming back to is just we, I want to initiate. I want to make it as easy for someone to say yes when I offer something nice. And so um, I, I knew that uh, she had some trouble because uh, she couldn't be around to watch him in the morning to take him to the bus stop. And so... Um, when I asked, can we do something, like, oh, we'd love to have him stay with us, she said yes. And so he was with us for nine days, um, just for an hour in the mornings. He would hang out with me until the kids came down, and then we'd all walk to the bus stop together. And then we have some kids that we know um, they don't have uh, childcare in case there's, uh, like, a, a snow day or, like, an unplanned uh, day where the schools are closed. And so there was a water main break in Arlington a couple, I think, last month, and um, we were just texting the mom saying, we would love to have him over. Um, we, I don't know if you have any plans. And, and it, she was so thankful, you know. So he stayed with us for the whole day. And we, you know, like, I don't know. It's like, I want to be that family that um, is so warm and welcoming that who, who knows, but maybe it is years later. They just think, wow, that fa- there's something different about that family. And the, um, then we were, when I pick up the kids, at the bus stop, there's supposed to be an adult for everyone, and so there's was one day there was a boy he he didn't have an adult, and so um, we took him and I walked him home with all the other kids, and the mom was texting me afterwards. She was so thankful, and she said um, jokingly, like maybe you'll become my emergency pickup, uh, and I was thinking that is like such an honor. I would love to be that, and and I think this is what we're trying to do with with, with our how hospitality works with strangers. I want to be so kind, and I want to demonstrate how much initiative God has done for us. I'm going to make it so easy. I want to do as much kindness towards you. And so there's so many different examples depending on, um, you know, everyone's unique circumstances. If you're a roommate, be a good roommate. You know, we don't let the dishes soak in the the sink. You know, you actually do. (laughs) We're not animals here. We... (laughs) If you, you know, at work, we invite people to coffee or lunch. So I think um, it's like 80% of American workers don't take lunch breaks anymore. Um, but we're trying to initiate and find ways to have, be regular and, and, and present with people. If neighbors, like, offering to watch their dog or, or um, watch their place if they leave. And just, we are searching for ways to, to be as kind to others as we can. And, and so when you think about strangers, it's, it's even like people that you may not see again. And so, um, like, one thing that came to my mind is Joel Stein, he used to write for uh, Time Magazine, and he had this article about Saddleback Church's um, improv comedy group. And the first line of the article, he said, um, evangelical Christians are good at many things, including 
bake sales and talking to me on planes. And I thought that that is like, I, s I feel like such an honor of, of our, our tribe is known as being engaging and, and wanting to talk to people on planes. Um, and I think at like restaurants, of course, we want to tip well. Um, Matt Chandler, he had a really good suggestion of saying, you know, when someone um, comes up, you could say, you know, one thing we do is we pray before meals. Is there anything we can pray for you for? And he, he just found that to be a really helpful thing. So, it, you know, regardless of whether we're going to see people again, if it's, you know, it could be circumstances like this where we may see them only once. So we want to be ex extravagant in our kindness. Um, so, and this is, you know, especially when you think about the world that we live in, there's such a low expectation of how uh, people should treat other people who don't believe the same things. So, like, there are, you know, members of the current administration that um, they're asked to leave restaurants or they'd have protesters in their home. I think the most recent example I think of is uh, October when Ellen DeGeneres, she's a talk show host, and there's a picture of her from a Cowboys game sitting next to George W. Bush, who is the 43rd president, and um, the, the there was so much backlash against her for how could you sit next to him? How could you be friends with someone who um, doesn't believe what you believe? And so, you know, there, there are, I think the internet wanted her to either abstain from friendship or publicly rebuke him. And there is a time for public rebuke, um, and maybe that is the most effective. There is a time for it. I don't think it's the most effective way in all cases, to change someone's heart. And I really appreciate, there's an article by Karen Swallow Pryor. She is an English professor at Liberty, and she was saying, on, on the topic of abortion, she has had times where she'll say something to someone. Um, she was in a grocery store, and there was an uh, um, abortionist at, right in front of her, and she said to him, uh, when are you going to stop killing babies? And he exploded you know he, he just was yelling in the store and she was fearful and she said you know if I could go back I probably would have still said it I felt like God gave me that moment to prick someone's conscience but she said the the majority of the time and I really appreciate what she said is I think we should just have a natural bent towards hospitality that leads to a subtle a subtle praying for a subtle uh, a soft admonition like I, I want to be so kind to you and so she says she has people that work for parent, Planned Parenthood. She has them over for dinner. She, she does meals with them. She writes articles with them. She will speak at conferences with them. She wants to be with them in, in the hopes that this hospitality will lead to an opportunity to, to have a soft admonition. So I really like that. The, the, the last thing I want to do tonight is just talk about my own story because Hospitality is, has been such a big role in, in my own process. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, I had great parents and a great family, but I was certainly a stranger to the kingdom of God. And then in middle school, I had two friends. Um, these are my best friends, Pat and Andrew, and they came into my life. Um, in high school, we played soccer together, and that's when we started to really um, spend a lot more time together. And, and at the beginning, there was one Christian and his pet, and he had just a, a loving home, and it was so welcoming, and um, the, the, the parents were so kind, and he was always extending invitations. I turned down countless invitations to do Young Life with him, but, you know, I was, like, appreciative of, of how much hospitality it was, so after college, we decided to take a road trip together. We'd never spent this much time together, but we took a month in my minivan 
to go around the country. And so they gave me this journal. Um, it, so in, in college, Andrew got saved. Um, and then he sent me the case for Christ, and I promptly put it in a trunk under my bed, and I never read it. Uh, we go on this road trip, and I, I'm reading this book, and we were having conversations. They gave me this. I did not pick it out for myself. And um, I just want to read. So this is June 8th, 2003. And so we are traveling up in California, and we get to Saddleback Church. And I said, Saddleback was really nice. A young pastor was speaking about how to keep a marriage growing. He had a lot of good messages and was humorous throughout the entire presentation, which included some songs by a great band and some skits as well. Uh, after the service, we drove along the Pacific Coast Highway. We stopped at a, a surf shop where we looked for board shorts. I ended up getting sandals, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we drove and drove, ate dinner at In-N-Out, amazing, then continued on the Pacific Coast Highway until we hit Venice Beach. We parked right off the beach, and then Andrew and I went on a long walk discussing religion. We came back and fell asleep. And I can remember this. this is, I can remember walking on the beach with Andrew talking about religion, and it is just a snippet of the story of knowing each other for nine years and just extended persistent hospitality um, to, to be able to have these deeper conversations. And so uh, nothing happened then. Um, that was June. I moved up to New York four months later, and they came up to visit, and they wanted to go to Brooklyn Tabernacle. So we went, and there's a pastor, Jim Cimbala, and he asked um, people to raise their hands if they knew where they were going to heaven. And I kind of probably lifted like a finger up without, <laughs> without um, you know, anyone seeing anything. And so that week he followed up and they were just saying, what, what, did, what did you think when he asked that question? And so um, I have the email of what I wrote back. And so I wrote, I've been thinking about... Um, the three of us and our conversations during the road trip and the nature of truth. I don't think that I ever really decided. I don't think I would have wanted to. It was just something in my heart that just told me that I believed. And I think the one thing that I thought about over and over that really got to me was that people always said, no matter what, past all the evidence and everything, it ultimately comes to a step of faith. So I still do, do not, I still do have a lot of things that I need to work out Many of the issues that we've talked about in the past couple of months are still with me, but the thing is, the awesome thing is about faith, I really think that I'm working now with someone to figure these things out. So that's it for now. i still got some work to do, and thanks for the words of encouragement. I am as excited as you guys are to see where this takes me. And so this was October 2003, and then my friend Pat replied all and said, uh, I'm no literary expert here, but according from reading your words, I am led to believe you're a Christian. And so that was the story of um, hospitality, this, this, this passion of what they saw vertically, of what God had done for them, and then this desire. It changed how they treated each other, and then this desire to go tell others, to, to extend kindness, to build relationships, to bring other people into the family of God. And I think that's, that's what we want to be passionate here at this church. We want to make a lifestyle of doing for others what God has done for us. So this is, um, yeah, this is it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus that 
um, we were far off, but you sent him on a rescue mission and he brought us near, that we, um, we get to be adopted into your family, that he died the death that we should have died, and that we have peace with you now and we have peace with each other. Help us to know that we are one with each other and that um, we belong to you, that we get to do good works that you've set out for us and that um, we get to do this, that it would please you and bring glory to you. So we pray that you would just strengthen us and, and um, remind us of this always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.